Hello, everybody, and welcome to the third episode of Costa Mesa Now, our Costa Mesa podcast, where we just have a lot of fun and talk to people who are important to our community. Um, Today, I've got from the great District 6 on the east side of Costa Mesa, Councilmember Jeffrey Harlan is my my podcast partner here, and uh, I call him the sage of the east side of Costa Mesa because he is a very wise man, and we benefit by his wisdom on the council. And then over here to my left is Jeff Chan, and Jeff Chan is a restaurateur on the east side of Costa Mesa, and he has uh, Oak and Cole on the 17th Street and also Tabu Shabu, which is not only on the 17th Street, but also uh, in many other locations. And then Mario Morovic, who has really uh, been a part of transforming uh, 17th Street into a great place. Both of these restaurateurs have uh, a great place to go. And uh, among his many other uh, properties that he has, he, the three in Costa Mesa are Wild Goose, Country Club, and um, Playa Mesa. Playa Mesa. How could I forget Playa Mesa? I love Playa Mesa. And then he's got other properties that we'll talk about in Costa Mesa. Two very important members of our business community, and of course, uh, Jeff Harlan on council. So, you guys ready to go? Sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Let's, it's great. It's great. So, um, Jeff, let me ask you this question to get it started off. So, the, the way we do these podcasts is we bring in a council member and they can kind of pick their topic and pick whatever that they want to talk about. So, why did you pick this topic and these particular guests? Well, uh, East Side Eateries just seems to be kind of this emerging thing. 17th Street in particular seems to be a, a hub. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, you know, it's seen a transformation over the last uh, probably 10 years. You know, places that were not really destinations that were sort of there are now becoming, you know, places where people of all, uh, of all stripes come to. So uh, Mario and Jeff have uh, properties on either side of 17th Street. Um, and we we're just talking about how, how that kind of has created a little ecosystem. And um, I think it's great that we've got these these businesses in 17th. Um, and what's interesting to me too, and hopefully we'll talk about this a little bit more, is that a lot of these restaurants have kind of expanded well beyond Costa Mesa. And so, you know, what starts here really kind of uh, takes a foothold elsewhere. Right, right, right. So Mario, your first r- restaurant in Costa Mesa was the, was it? Was it was the, the Wild Goose Tavern. The Wild Goose Tavern. Yeah. But it, when you bought it, it was just kind of a sort of a dive bar type place. Yeah, we um, we bought the property in 2008, and the um, previous tenant was the Little Knight, and the Little Knight had a reputation for being called the Little Fight. Mm, um, yeah. It was kind of a rundown little dive bar, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But he decided to um, improve his operation, move the Triangle Square, and then we we, we were you know. Stuck. And it became the Black Knight. Um, no, the Black Knight is, is yeah, the, wild, the, the Little Knight became the Black Knight in Triangle Square. Right. And a little known fact is the current country club restaurant yeah. that used to be called Pier Street Annex used to be called the Black Knight. Oh, wow. Yeah, so mm-hmm. back in the 1960s, the country club was the Black Knight. It became Pier Street Annex, and then it became the country club. So the Little Knight in Triangle Square, they got their name from the Black Knight, which you know, we, we own that property as well. Yeah, that's great. And then, the, and then next you transformed the... Uh, Pier Street Annex into Country Club, right? Yeah, so, so the um, Little Knight relocated and then we remodeled the property, became Wild Goose Tavern, which was really small at the time. And since then we expanded and, and made it better and improved everything. The Pier Street Annex, um, we acquired that property and we turned it into the Country Club. 
in the country club is kind of an upscale steakhouse pasta. Um, it turns into a, a dance club at nighttime on the weekends. So it went from Pastry and Annex, where you can grill your own burger yeah. on the patio and you bring your own meat, BYOM. Yep. And then now it's a country club. Yeah, that was a huge transformation. What 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 did you see? Potential did you see in Pier Street Annex to make you think that you could realize this vision that we see now as a country club? You know, the potential was the location. It was on um, being an east side coast of Mesa. That was the big draw. Uh, when we redid the Pier Street Annex to the country club, we tore the entire building down, and we always like to keep a little piece of the history. So you have that iconic A-frame that, yeah. that, that was at the uh, Pier Street. Uh, we kept the A-frame, suspended it in midair with, with freeway shoring, built the entire brand new building underneath it with electrical mechanical foundation. And when we were done, we set the A-frame back down on top of a finished building. Wow. And you know, that was just our, our, our wanting to have a, a piece of the history remain on 17th Street. Yeah. And then Playa Mesa is the, th is the third place. And that was, that was a, a different places before it became Playa Mesa, right? Yeah, Playa Mesa, when we took it over, it was uh, Ruby's. And it was Ruby's Burgers, but then Ruby's Burgers um, converted it to like a different concept. It went from the 50s Ruby's to the 60s, which didn't really make any sense. Mm -hmm. it, was their, it was their last, like a, like, a, like a Hail Mary throw to try and make the location viable. And um, I think the problem with Ruby's is it used to be Boston Market. It was Don Jose's. It was an Italian restaurant before that. It was, it was Ruby's. And every one of them failed, I, you know, partially because some of the concepts that were there became irrelevant. And part of it was nobody ever put the proper amount of capital into the building to give it a proper remodel. Right. So they kept putting lipstick on a pig and you know, trying to call it something else. So when we took it over, we you know tore the entire building down to the ground, redid all the infrastructure, and made it Playa Mesa with hydraulic you know bifold opening windows and light, bright, fun, and you know now it's Playa Mesa. And tons of tequila. And we have um, one how, many how, how many tequilas do you have? Um, between the tequilas and the mezcals, we probably have about um, close to 80. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Scratch Kitchen. We uh, recently, um, Yelp just voted us the best margarita in the state of California. So to have, oh, that, wow. yeah, to have that accolade from a national platform is pretty cool. Which margarita was? It was just a margarita in general. So what Yelp did is um, it was national tequila, it was National Margarita Day. And they went, um, they analyzed their analytics for every single Mexican restaurant in the state of California. And they said that Playa Mesa had more unique comments about their margarita than any other restaurant in the state. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, that's great. And right here in Costa Mesa. Yeah. Yeah. All right, way, way to go. Yeah. Well, you know, because we have, I say this a lot, you know, I talk about restaurants to anybody who will listen to me about the Costa Mesa restaurants. And we've got 17 of the top 50 restaurants in Orange County, and we have 2% of the population. So it's pre pretty amazing what the restaurant community has done in Costa Mesa to have it a destination place. So let's talk about uh, Jeff Oak and Cole. Let me and just Tom add to that comment. Yeah, the, of course. I mean, it's also uh, only Orange County city that has Michelin stars. Pretty cool. Yes. You know, uh, mm. and we do have a lot of good food in Orange County, but it's pretty cool to have a couple Michelin stars down here. What does that mean, Michelin star? I, so, I know I know we have some Michelin stars, but what does that signify? The Michelin guidebook is, is basically the ultimate Bible of culinary accolade, right? So, you know, you have different types of accolades. You have the James Beard Award and things like that, but, but Michelin has always been known, and it is the tire company, I believe, that came out with this guy that's... Uh, um, basically focuses all across the world the best restaurants in the world and so three three tiers single star two star three star 
Um, three star, there's only a handful of them in the entire world. I mean, really yeah. have to reach a whole nother level. Um, and then two stars and then one star. But to get a star is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, and for the longest time, California in general was ignored. I mean, NorCal got some attention. You know, you had a couple single stars in, uh, in San Francisco and, and Northern California. But Southern California, for the most part, was generally ignored. Orange County was completely not on the map. Yeah. So, um, you know, you had a few in L.A., and then you had a couple of years where L.A. didn't get recognized with any stars. And then, um, you know, out of the blue, you know, Costa Mesa started popping up, you know, with um, Taco Maria um, right. uh, getting a star. And then um, there's a phenomenal sushi place in the lab that, uh, Hanare, that got a star. Yeah. And, and now you got Knife Pleat in South Coast Plaza. It's pretty cool. It's just, it just shows you that the, the culinary culture of Orange County is Costa Mesa. Yeah, you know, you don't see stars anywhere else. They're they're not in Santa Ana, Tustin, Fullerton, Irvine. They're they're here. Yeah, so, and cool. and and we've t we've we talked about before we went on on air how Seventeenth Street specifically has become a real destination spot for, mm -hmm. for restaurants. So, talk about uh, that and and how your 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 uh, restaurants fit into that. So, uh, you know, I started my restaurant career with uh, The Alley in Newport Beach. Uh, took it over in late 2006. Um, but I lived in Eastside Costa Mesa. So I lived off of uh, 16th. So, you know, going to the restaurant. Is restaurants. that where you grew, grew up? No, I, I grew up in Palos Verdes. But okay. um, after college, I, I kind of settled down here in, in Costa Mesa, Newport Beach area. So, um, and then having the restaurant down the road, I, I loved Eastside. So settled down into Eastside. And, uh, been there 10 years or so. Um, but when I was living there, you know, I just noticed that there really, at that time, wasn't a uh, expansive menu selection, right? I mean, it was pretty basic. You got, you had the, you know, Wedge Burger on the corner, you had Pier Street, you had a couple bars, but, you know, there was really no cohesiveness to anything. It was just, there were things that existed for a long time and a couple places to go eat, but nothing really special. And I thought that um, what would be pretty cool is bringing some ethnic flair into the neighborhood. So that's why, uh, in, you know, in 2011, we started planning Tabu Shabu uh, right. with opening in 2012. And, you know, really was a Hail Mary. I mean, I had no idea how it was going to go because, you know, Shabu Shabu itself is a, is a pretty niche concept, you know. Yeah. Um, it's not sushi, which has, you know, gained a lot of popularity or hibachi or any of these things. But Shabu Shabu, I was like, eh, I don't know, you know, it's yeah. not a, you know, predominantly Asian neighborhood. This might not work, you know. Yeah. And then we tucked ourselves in the back of this small strip center, you know, with the, that had a karate studio and a vacuum repair store next door, you know, like great rant. But I was like, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's going to work. but. Right. You know, and didn't didn't go nuts, didn't build it out to make it look gorgeous. You know, you know, just said, hey, let's let's try to be authentic with the food. Let's you know mess around. My my mom was making some of the the recipes in there. She she made a homemade kimchi that we sold, and uh, you know, I was just it was almost an experiment out of fun because I lived right there. Yeah. And then we just saw it take off, and I'm like, oh wow, this this actually did work. You yeah. know. Um, and uh, it, it was cool to see that you could bring something really ethnic and communicate it in a way that, uh, you know, all different demographics would enjoy it. And we, we saw that really happen. So, I mean, from there, I kind of kept spinning that over and over again, and hence Oak and Coal in, in 2017. Um, we opened that, that place, which, which had a focus in Japanese yakitori and little skewers on top of charcoal grills. And, you know, another kind of, out of the out of the blue concept, and it worked. Is there know? any restaurant like Oak and Coal, or is it is it is? I mean, how did you get the idea to focus on um, 
So in, in, in on yakitori. In, 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 if you go to Tokyo, I mean, it's all over. So okay. I did I did a I did like a little food uh, food vacation where you know I went to Tokyo and I went to all the different yak. I mean, it's street food there. It's all over the street. You can go anywhere and get yakitori, and uh, you know. Unfortunately, I would say it's better just because it's more authentic. Being in, yeah. in Tokyo, you're on the streets, you know, smoke in the air, and right. you know, there's there's old Japanese businessmen smoking cigarettes and eating yakitori. It's pretty cool. I mean, it, I mean, the whole vibe of that that scene. And so, uh, what we wanted to do is 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 try to bring a little bit of authenticity um, into a more sit down environment, um, an upscale environment. So. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been done before. I would say, you know, we are pretty unique. We've had to regear the menu a few times to make it a little bit more suitable to, you know, what people wanted in in, in uh, Newport Heights and, and East Side Costa Mesa. So, um, but we've been very successful. We're actually expanding right now. We hopefully, um, if the uh, building department, you know, does well, uh, we, we get our uh, permits to open at the end of this month for uh, our expansion, which is uh, a bar. Yeah. Uh, it's called the Oak Oak Room, and yeah. it's uh, basically, you know, craft cocktails. But we, you know, the regular original Oak and Coal was very loud, very family oriented, which we love. We don't want to change that. But uh, the Oak Room is a little bit quieter, date night, dark, dimly lit. You know, yeah. trying trying to get a little bit of the Mario vibe in there. Little you know? speakeasy little vibe type. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I I've always been kind of anti the word speakeasy. It, it sounds exclusive. It, it has an air of. Uh, uh, Use the right words here without being offensive, but it, it just like has the prohibition era type. Uh, it just it, it kind of seems snooty when you yep. say it's a speakeasy. It's like almost like it's exclusive. You know, I, I don't believe that in our business exclusivity is a good thing. Right. You know, we're very inclusive. We want everybody to enjoy themselves, have a good time. It's not you're going to say. One of our, our city values is inclusivity. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I mean, I think that everyone has should have. I mean assuming you can behave yourself should have the opportunity to come in and it shouldn't be a place where you know you i've always hated walking into a bar and you know and it's a craft cocktail bar and you're like oh i'll just take a i'll take a bud light and they look at you like oh my god what the hell's wrong with you it's right like, what right the hell's right. wrong with you i want a bud light yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly they're fantastic and refreshing like it's not, it doesn't mean i can't appreciate a 25 dollars smoked old-fashioned but I don't want that now. I want a right. Bud Light. You want what <laughs> yeah. you want when you want. Exactly, it. and I think yeah. I think you know in our industry that that should be the the vibe. You know, we're service oriented. We should give our guests what they want, and not and not push this air of you know we, we're going to tell you what you want. It's like, no. So for the record, you can get the smoked old fashioned and the Bud Light at Country Club. Yes, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's I true. Always, I always think about that. You know, when people say something's exclusive, I say, well, if it's exclusive, it most likely excludes me. <laughs> That's right. Yep. I've never been able to get into anything exclusive in my life. In my life. Yeah. So we were talking, like I say, off air about how you guys are friends and not really competitors, but collaborators almost in creating this destination and how all the different businesses uh, and restaurants on on 17th Street kind of feed off of each other and help each other. Can yeah. Explain explain that. That's cause to some people who are think of the business world as kind of cutthroat and competitive. That's somewhat counterintuitive, but it's interesting to hear you guys take on that. Well, I think the restaurant industry and bar industry of the past has always been very competitive. You had a guy that opens up down the street and everyone gets nervous, like, what's going to happen? And um, I was lucky enough to meet Jeff in about 2012 after he opened up Tabu Shabu. We went to an Angels game together with Ombrady, and he was just the nicest guy. 
Uh, he kept trying to buy me tequila shots. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he was just a very nice guy. He mentioned inclusivity. He just included me and like in, you know, into the group and the friendship. And we were competitors. And at that time, we were opening up the Wild Goose Tavern. And you know, we, we're, we're smart enough to know through history that all these people of the past that were always worried about their new competition, they always ended up doing better together. And you know, if you look at the Newport Beach Peninsula, um, you know, there's multiple restaurants and bars, and they all do well. And you own all of them. Uh, I, I only own, <laughs> I only own about, about, about half of them. <laughs> but um, you know, I've I've been it's it's been like a case study. Uh, we we've had um, competitors in the past that we viewed as competitors, and they closed for major remodels, and we thought, okay, they're going to close, and we're going to absorb all this temporary business while they're unclosed. And we've actually seen our sales drop because it became less of a destination. And on 17th Street, when we opened up the, um, when we, you know, the Ruby's closed and we became a gourmet Mexican restaurant, you know, we, we, uh, we saw the Wild Goose sales increase. Uh, when Wild Goose expanded, uh, we saw the Country Club sales increase mm -hmm. because it just became more of a destination just in general. Well, when um, you know, Jeffrey opened up Oak and Cole, they just brought more people that, to that side of 17th Street. They'd go to Oak and Cole, they get dinner, they walk across the street, they come to the Country Club, and now he opens up his new bar and it'll be a little bit more of the same. Yeah. Yeah. So each of you have what I would call like a concentrated footprint. Like you've got three restaurants close proximity to each other on 17th. You've got uh, two in the same strip mall mm -hmm. and expansion. Is that by design that you're just familiar and comfortable in that area? Or do you kind of look broader in Costa Mesa to see if they're, or even Newport, that they're places you want to go to? It's, it's a little bit of both. It's um, by design in the sense that when the opportunities came up, we saw the value in operating multiple concepts that, that, that are close to each other with um, geographic proximity. And also, um, it allowed us to kind of reverse engineer a concept that's going to be synergistic instead of competitive. You know, so when the um, um, Pier Street Annex property came up, uh, my, my biggest fear was what if somebody opens up something really similar to the Wild Goose and wants to directly compete with us. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, having you know, more operators in the same geographic area is not always, you know, not competition. You know, sometimes somebody opens up something really similar to what you're already doing, and then, yeah, it's direct competition. But um, Jeff is smart enough to reverse engineer his concepts and create Oak and Coal based on what he felt the community needed. Um, that's what we did for Country Club. That's what we did for the old Rubies. That's now Playa Mesa. When um, the Playa Mesa property came up, that was Rubies. I mean, at the time, my partner and I, we didn't have a concept. It was the property came up for sale. Okay, we knew we wanted it because it's next door. What do we do with it? It wasn't like we're McDonald's looking for locations that are right. going to be good future McDonald's. Or we're not, we, don't, we, we didn't have an existing concept that we thought would be good there. So you and first bought the property? Yes. Okay. You first bought the property and had no idea what to do with it. And we just knew that it's 17th Street and we had to have it. And then once we acquired it, the conversation was, what does the community need? Uh, what's the fit here for the community? And we you know, talked about there's a void in absolute gourmet scratch kitchen Mexican food. You know, hand-squeezed tortillas. Um, I'm sorry, hand-squeezed margaritas, homemade tortillas. we got the gals on the Kamal, you know, the big mm -hmm. rotisserie grill. Right. The girls are making their tortillas by hand all day long. And, and there's nothing like that in Eastside. There's other Mexican restaurants, but not like Playa Mesa. And so we were trying to fit that niche that we felt was complementary and also synergistic where it would you know, rise the tide for you know, everybody in the area. So it's, it's interesting how, to me how kind of scientific that is. And both of you have a educational background. You, do you have an MBA from, from USC or do you want yeah, to Yeah, I've USC? got my undergraduate in entrepreneurship and my master's in business from the Marshall School of Business. 
And then and you went to UC Irvine. I'm not nearly as impressed. But as you went that. to UC but, uh, Irvine. Right? Yeah, I did. I graduated from Irvine. I minored in management, um, and then I kind of jumped out of school and went into real estate for a little while while still working in the restaurant industry. So, um, and then my dad was a, a self-employed entrepreneur his whole life. So I would say the majority of what I learned was from my dad. Yeah. 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 That's that's a great teacher. Yeah. When you have that opportunity. Still a teacher, unfortunately. Oh, even though I don't need is, his teachings anymore. Is, is, he, is he still involved in the business? Not at all. He, he was never involved in, in the restaurant side of things for me. You know, he kind of let me do what I needed to do. And but you know, he in terms of you know things like taxes and and setting up companies and and just how the inner workings of how to be a self-employed businessman. Now I've had to evolve beyond that. You know, because my dad always kind of. Uh, old immigrant mentality, focus on one, sweep the parking lot, you know, really don't let anybody else do it because they can't do it as good, you know, yeah. and then obviously when you expand and have more locations, you have to learn how to delegate and learn how to trust people and train them to, to, to emulate you and, and do the things that you would do. So um, had to evolve from his thinking, you know, because it's first generational immigrant mentality is different. I think Mario comes from the same similar background, do, yeah. you know, with, with a hardworking dad and um, it, it's pretty cool that you have that, and very, very fortunate to have that. But, um, but no, he still, he still offers his two cents. I mean, in regards to everything. I mean, I just uh, moved into a new house, and he brought over his old furniture because he felt like it needed it, and I yeah. really didn't feel like it needed it. But you know, it's just it, it's 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 a dad always going to be imposing. You can't, you can't say no to a free couch. No, it, it, <laughs> he, he, he did an entire room. Like showed up with a moving yeah. truck, no forewarning. Like just hey, I'm outside with a moving truck. I said, can you send it away and go somewhere else, please? You know. So, um, but you know, I mean, as 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 uh, as tough as that is to deal with, you know, you you, it's it's um, it's a blessing to have that. You know, it's a blessing to have somebody you can look up to and really appreciate for helping you. you yeah. Know? And, yeah. So and uh, yeah, that's an education that you can't buy. It's no, the, it's the um, you know street smarts. My father and my mother were both Croatian immigrants. My father was a cabinet maker. He was orphaned as, as a young child after World War II in communist Yugoslavia. And when they came from Croatia, now they came to America. My mother cooked in the kitchen. My dad managed the, the finances and the front of house in like a little neighborhood tavern. And it was where was that? It was um, in Orange, and there's another one in Anaheim. And it was actually called the Wild Goose. Oh, how funny! Yeah, so that's <laughs> just a, that's just a coincidence, or, or well, no, is no, that no, why you named that, it? That's, that's why, why you named it. named it the end. Yeah, we named it as a tribute to my parents' first uh, restaurant bar. Oh wow! Yeah, so my um, I was a little kid. You know, I hung out in the restaurant bar. I was five years old. They couldn't afford daycare, and I literally went to a cowboy saloon every day as a child in a smoke-filled room where everyone's you know eating burgers and drinking beer, and you know I was just you know smoking cigarettes inside back then, and I was a little kid just walking around the restaurant, and I vowed that I would never do it. Yeah, because you know, it seemed like a hard, a hard job. Right? I, yeah. I watched my parents work so hard, and then you know, after you know, graduating college, going to work in Silicon Valley, it's that old saying: you don't know what you have until it's gone. Yeah. I was then I realized I really missed the hospitality industry. I, I never thought I would. I missed the human interaction. I missed the relationships and you know the environment that I that, that I grew up in. And then I quit my job, moved back home, and much like Jeff, you know, I, I, mo most of what I know came from my parents. Yeah. That's that's a great education. It's the best great, education. great, great Joni Mitchell reference too. Joni Mitchell, that's big, big yellow taxi. Mm -hmm. I know you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> so you ask a question. No, I'm not going. Ask a question. You don't need to a, a robust ask, question. Ask a robust question about something <laughs> other than Joni Mitchell. Well, I I, I kind of want to go back to something Jeff was talking about earlier, which was the the Michelin stars. Um, 
Because what I find really uh, unique about Costa Mesa is that you have this wide variety of dining options, mm -hmm. whether it's a Michelin star restaurant, which incidentally, they're in the, kind of the strangest locations, right? Like you would expect that at a place like South Coast Plaza, like Knife Fleet, but um, the one at the lab is kind of tucked in the corner. Uh, Taco Maria's in the middle of South yeah. Coast collection. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it is the, um, Costa Mesa is often seen as kind of this emerging foodie area. Do you kind of think of it that way at all? Or Definitely. 100%. Big time. And so, and so how do you expand from that? What, what do you think are going to be the kind of emerging either restaurants or concepts that are going to come, come, to come here? Well, I think the trends are always changing. And, um, you know, when we, um, when Jeff had talked about going to a nice place and ordering a Bud Light and people were getting a little snooty prior to 2013, and um, there's so many speakeasies, quote unquote. And a speakeasy is a great term because um, you got people that call themselves a speakeasy, but they have a Facebook page and a press release. The whole premise of being a speakeasy is, is actually being secret, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, you know the, the trends are gonna, the trends will continue to change, and I think Costa Mesa is always going to be on, on like the cutting edge of like what's relevant and, and, and what's new and, and what people want. And, and there's longevity. And um, if you get too trendy, then then you go out of style. And when we were opening up the Wild Goose in 2012, we were right on that cusp when all that snooty bar stuff was kind of, people were getting a little tired of it. Mm -hmm. Like when the chef was telling you like, you know, you know what, what you should order. And yeah. if I walked into a bar and said, give me a vodka soda, like vodka, why are you drinking vodka? I'm like, well, you know, do you carry it? Yeah, well, if you have it, I want it. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, um, and then when we opened up the Wild Goose, we, we literally sat down and had a strategy meeting and said, you know, um, you know, we don't want to be snooty. We want to. We don't want to be that new spot with craft cocktails and only craft beer. We want to sell a Bud Light, a Coors Light, a Corona, and also be able to offer elevated cocktail program. You you, you could have both. Yeah. And you know, probably seventy five percent of our sales are, are locals. They're the people that live in the community that go in there and want the Pacifico, mm -hmm. or or a, or a burger, right? So if we would have jumped on that too trendy fad at that time, mm -hmm. I don't think the Wild Goose would be what it is today. And I think the thing that made it successful and the thing that's going to make other restaurants successful in the future is acknowledging and, and identifying what the trends are, but keeping true to your, your culture, keeping true to the culture of the community and not trying to implement things or bring things to Costa Mesa that are trendy, but bring things that are relevant and, and you know, knowing that distinction. And one thing about you, Mario, is, is you know, you're kind of a, you're a, a, a really a triple threat, I think, in terms of, of the because you've got the restaurant tour aspect of the industry, but you also have the real estate piece where you're picking out and dealing with the real estate portfolio, but also construction. So, like the you have to, I mean, and we've had some issues, right, where we've had to interact when you were had construction projects at Playa yeah. Mesa and 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 uh, um, and Wild Goose, and so like. Let's just take Wild Goose. So when you remodeled that and completely transformed it, what was that process like from kind of vision to execution? I would say the, the most interesting thing about what we do is we build and construct things um, for the next generation. And um, that's an active conversation that my partner Andrew and I have all the time. Uh, oftentimes when you lease a space, you have a lease, the lease is 10, 15 years, whatever it is, and then you invest enough money to justify how much time you have on that lease. And what's even more interesting is 15 years sounds like a long time, right? Mm -hmm. But then you get seven and a half years into a 15 year lease, 
and then the value of your business starts to diminish every year your lease gets shorter and shorter and then people stop reinvesting into their ongoing business based on uh, an end date being near and we purchased our properties because we never wanted to have that you know how much can we invest to justify the term you know decision to make yeah. we over invest into it we we upgrade the infrastructure the fire sprinklers the plumbing the electrical we make everything safer and then also we could make it much substantially nicer based on the fact that we don't need to worry about an end date and we can hand it down to the next generation and know that they have something special that, that was built correctly and i think in east side coast of mesa you'll notice a lot of those properties are, are not the best looking properties I, I just call them stucco boxes like you look up and down 17th street you can tell you know the people that just kind of looked at their property or their business as oh, how much how can i justify the investment whereas we justify it by making it as nice as we can and you look at our quality of our construction uh, like i like to say it's pretty special it is yeah. but if you look down 17th street well an another great example is pete's coffee yes uh, pete's coffee on 17th street were the landlords their lease came up um, we had a dozen different releasing agents call us up and want to release it to another concept you know one of them was phil's and they're willing to pay more money and we kept pete's we worked with them we put a substantial amount of money into the renovation it used to be an old Kentucky Fried Chicken building, mm -hmm. and it had that <laughs> weird tin roof, and it was Pete's Coffee, and it was just, it just looked weird. And, and now the um, level of construction there, the outdoor patios are just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And you know, now, now you can tell that there's pride of ownership there. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So, uh, Jeff, and I want to talk to, to have both of you uh, talk about this, but in, in, in sort of a different way. Um, one of the things is both of you go beyond Costa Mesa. So we're obviously here talking primarily about Costa Mesa. But you both have properties in other cities. You started in Newport Beach. You started in... I started in um, Fullerton and Orange. Fullerton and Orange. Mm -hmm. so, you, so you came to Costa Mesa but didn't necessarily start in Costa Mesa. And Jeff, Tabu Shabu is in... How many locations now? So six. We'll, we're, we have seven uh, open right now, and then another four in construction. So um, by the end of twenty-two, we'll be at eleven locations, with uh, three of them out of state. So three of them will be in Texas. And I read that um, that you have a franchising program. We do. Talk we about, do. Talk about that. So so corporately, corporate-wise, we control um, basically uh costa mesa and then we have one in north park san diego uh, which is close to downtown and then one in carlsbad but outside of that um, all of our locations are franchised so uh, what we do is we 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 basically sell the concept we train and uh and completely help an operator implement and give them an opportunity to run what we think to be is a is a great concept and 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 bring it to their community and how i mean how is that to, to generate a market for franchise opportunities and bring franchisees in? How do you how do you do that? It's difficult. You know, you have to have a proof of concept. That's that's the key first thing that you have to have. You know, nobody's going to invest in anything. And you know, a restaurant is a significant investment. I mean, obviously Mario, uh, you know, spends a great deal of effort to making his his buildings beautiful. But even someone taking over a lease, you know, the average cost of a 2,000 square foot restaurant is probably at least half a million dollars these days, you know, so um, For just a, a mom-and-pop operator to invest that much money is 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 tremendous so uh, Having a concept that's already been proven that shows that the system works is is the first step and then uh, from that Usually the more locations you open the more traffic starts 
you know, you start getting noticed on the right. radar. So um, I've been very fortunate to have some really good franchise operators that, you know, we've worked with over, over the few years. And we've only really been franchising for about two, three years. So um, we're kind of in our infancy still. Um, we see a lot of potential, you know, we're moving into some other states, but, um, you know, I, I have fun with it. It's, it's, it's something that I really believe in. And, you know, it started right here in Eastside Costa Mesa and uh, on a concept that I didn't necessarily think was going to work and I just tried it and now it's a, a viable national brand, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, in pre, pre Tabu Shabu franchising, I was all about, you know, kind of, kind of what Mario was doing with independent concepts, fitting what a community needed. You know, we opened up, uh, the Wayfair in 2014. That was a, a big undertaking for mm -hmm. us to take over, uh, the Detroit bar. And I remember Mario was actually one of, one of our first customers. So yeah. talking about camaraderie and, 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 and pumping each other up and wanting each other to do well, he was one of our first customers and he was come checking out the music and he's like, this is really cool, you yeah. know? And, uh, uh, you know, and then that's also understanding what your community needs, what, whether they liked that music, whether there's somebody else you could bring in to, to, to bring in better music. So um, the, the Detroit Bar Takeover was, was pretty, uh, pretty uh, uh, overwhelming at first. You know, it's, it, you know, Detroit had a very big legacy for great mm -hmm. music in Costa Mesa, so we had to follow suit. You know, obviously we wanted to improve the building and, and make it nicer for the future generation. but. Um, at the same time, we couldn't destroy whatever legacy was there. So that was a, a pretty dangerous game of, of what we had to play. So, um, but uh, but after that, anyway, uh, you know, with Tabu is is I really did try to try to grow this brand into something that could be scalable. So it's it's difficult to find good operators, and it's difficult to find good locations these days. Actually, land, uh, landlord wise, Mario was almost our landlord in uh, in Orange. So we opened a location in Orange Circle and. He called me one day and said, hey, I have this great space. And I said, I'll, we'll take it. Yeah. And then he, he unfortunately uh, uh, had a good opportunity to, to, to get rid of it pretty quickly. So We, we, um, owned, <laughs> we owned the building for one day. <laughs> and we had a crazy offer and sold it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, uh, I, which I, 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 I would do the exact same thing. But, uh, but you know, one day he's like, hey, you want this? And I said, yeah, I'll take it. Next yeah. day I'm like, hey, I still want it. I don't own it anymore. <laughs> that sucks. But, but, uh, but, but I introduced but, Jeff to, to the new landlord, yes. and um, Jeff is currently operating there with the Tabu Shabu. Yeah, yeah, so oh, wow. it, yeah, right in the Orange Circle. So um, yeah. very cool. Which which uh, he still has a business right across the street uh, with the District Lounge, right? right. So uh, yeah, I mean we're we're kind of we still we still are, are near each other even when we're not near each other. So it's yeah. pretty cool. So the way so the Wayfair the alley. Tabu Shabu, Oak and Cole, mm -hmm. what, any other concepts that you... Uh, that's, well, I did a, a, we did do a, a brief concept in, uh, in the same shopping center as Oak and Cole and Tabu Shabu. We had a, a concept called Love and Puree, and it was organic baby food purees and organic baby food and, mm -hmm. and different little snacks. And uh, we did very well, you know, it was a difficult business to manage because it's, you know, perishables and organic produce. And, you know, it was right when my, uh, my daughter was born. So uh, my wife <laughs> would bring the daughter in and she would work and prepare in the kitchen. And it, it was a lot of fun. Um, but uh, we had an opportunity to uh, sell the business to um, what's there now, which is a very, very great Mexican concept called Tres Muchachos, <laughs> uh, small little crafty uh, Mexican restaurant, great wine selection. Um, so, and they're still operating and doing great. So, um, can't say that I'm uh, bummed on, on, on getting rid of that concept. It was a lot of work, the, yeah. the purees, the baby food purees, but, uh, but we had fun while doing it, so. Yeah. And I heard the pancake house is, is on changing over. Yeah, that's been the, been the word for, for some time. Uh, we, I heard it's gonna be a Shake Shack, is that true? 
Um, I was told it was going to be a, a breakfast concept. Yes. A breakfast concept. Yeah. Well, you're probably right. So you should yeah. advise them on raising the A-frame. Raise the A-frame, tear the building down, spend, spend triple. Yeah. <laughs> and then no one's going to care. <laughs> I think that's the biggest difficulty there is, is, is I think, that, you know, the, the, that shopping center is on a land lease. So they have difficulty, you know, investing incredible amounts of money. You know, with Mario owning the building, there's no, you don't have to trade off quality of construction or quality of build because it's yours. You right. know, just like your home, it's yours. You know, you, you spend the money to do it right and, and care about it. But uh, the difficulty there is that that building is going to need some serious rehab. And, uh, you know, a business owner has to come in and drop that kind of coin and be on a lease. And that's a difficult undertaking. Well, you know? that, that's exactly what, uh, what I was saying earlier about you've got to get the person who's financially motivated to put the proper infrastructure into it. And if it's just the lease, the person going in there is going to say, well, how much time is on the lease? How much can I spend? Right. right. And then, you know, yeah. what's the worth, you know, what's the worth um, to the actual landlord for, you know, how much do like they want to invest in their properties? And they're looking at it from a real estate only perspective on every dollar I invest is one dollar less of a return I'm going to get in the future on rent. Whereas we're not looking at it from the restaurant side or the real estate side. We're looking at both as a partnership. So I want to make sure we talk about another aspect of this is how many people you employ. So now you've got a group, uh, the lounge group. So talk about the lounge group and how many people are, I know my son worked at Malarkey's oh, yeah. for a bit. Yeah. I mean, so many people in Costa Mesa are employed by your, and both of you, you know. Um, so talk about the lounge group, how many people you employ, what, what are some of your other properties? Yeah, so the lounge group is the um, you know, human resources, accounting, and marketing arm for all the restaurants and bars. Uh, the restaurants and bars are actually owned independently. The lounge group, you know, we're, we're kind of just the umbrella that does the, you know, the stuff that's scalable. And um, company-wide, between all the locations, we're at north of about 850 employees. Uh, we have two new locations opening up in downtown Fullerton. We're opening up a um, Irish pub called Mickey's, um, a Mickey's Pub and also a cowboy bar called the High Horse Saloon. And when those open, it'll be another 80 employees. So we'll be like north of 930, 940 employees within the next 60 days. Wow. wow. You're getting up there to 1,000 employees. Yeah. yeah. That's something. And it's, um, you know, these days it's really difficult because procuring staff has gotten harder. Um, right. Something's going, you know, something's in the water. Uh, people just you know don't want to work in the hospitality industry as as much as they did prior to COVID. I just feel that when they had the all, the mandatory COVID shutdowns, everyone just kind of got, you know, everything ended up in disarray, and a lot of people left the area. They moved to other industries. Um, they got comfortable, you know, you know, trying trying new things, and there's just been a nationwide labor shortage. You see it on the news every single day. Well. Touching on that, you know, I, I, you know, it's common struggle. We're, we're, we're dealing with it hardcore too. But, uh, you know, the COVID thing, I think what, what happened was everybody is kind of in this mindset where COVID really shifted their emotional well-being. They, they, they don't know what, what makes them happy anymore, right? I mean, for me, staying at home for two years was, was in the beginning awesome and then towards the end miserable, right? You know, and so I think that all these employees that were employed uh, by Mario and myself and in the hospitality industry, it's an exciting industry. It's a lot of fun, you know, and, and people that love it absolutely love it and could see themselves doing nothing else. But um, everyone is in this like quandary of, of what else do I do? Or is my is this all there is to my life? And is is this and I, you know I think social media influences that yes. where it's like oh well this is cool well this is cool everyone has the attention span of a gnat 
And so um, I think it'll come back. I, I really do. I think I think we just have to give it time for this post-COVID era to, of people's emotions to settle down a little bit. I think emotionally we're all over the place. And well, we there's don't. also a lot of free money that got dispersed, and um, I think people just acclimated very quickly to enjoying time off, mm -hmm. which is not, it's like not a bad thing. I mean, you know, I'd love to have time off as well, but I just don't have that opportunity. And um, people want to work from home more, and they're you know like remote working now with Zoom and everything else has become more acceptable. And you know people had to when all the restaurants were on close, they they were actually looking for other industries to work in because the one that they were working in was not available. Right. Yeah. right. So um, I think that, like um, Jeff said, there, there's going to be a point where things settles down. I think things are going to get back to normal. And the, the world is such a crazy place now with inflation and interest rates, and everything's kind of in a state of flux. And, and, and once everything settles down, who knows when that's going to be, 12, 24 months, when that happens, I think, you know, things will get back to normal. We're, we're, we're just not there yet. Yeah, right. I mean, I think part of it, too, is stability. I mean, if we can say one thing about the hospitality and the restaurant industry is during the pandemic and COVID, because of, of the nature of the response, it became very unstable. You know, you'd be open and then you'd be closed. Yeah. Then you'd be open with restrictions and then some of the restrictions. And that, of course, affected the, the staff and how many staff you could have on and how much money they would make. It also affected them um, psychologically. Some of the staff were having a really hard time with losing their jobs, getting their jobs back, losing their jobs right. again with, with, with the next shutdown. Uh, we, we had management that just couldn't handle it. You know, you know, they didn't sign up for opening, closing, and having you know, no, no predictability in you know, what they do in their career. And we had management for the first time ever say, we, we just can't handle it anymore. We can't handle shutting down one more time. Yeah. And um, we're really lucky as a company because we were nimble and so, so was Jeff. We were able to procure amazing staff at the end of COVID. In um, you know, late 2020, early 21, in January, when everything was reopening, we, we got some amazing staff. Mm -hmm. well, well, now, you know, when we have turnover now, it's a little bit more difficult to replace people. But we have a really good base of quality people because we were nimble and we operated quickly and we and we opened quickly. Yeah, and actually piggybacking on that with with you know their their mental health and and the quality of their lives at the time. It's it's not only just the opening and closing, but the general uh, uh, vibe of of the world changed. Right, the you know political turmoil and. Uh, the real dichotomy between the left and the right, and, and that bled into restaurants, which was amazing to me, because it shouldn't, right? right? Restaurants are inclusive, like we talked about yeah. before this. It should be about everyone deserves to come into our restaurant. We don't care what your belief system is. Right. You know, we, it, it doesn't matter. It's, you're here to eat. You, know, you break bread with your friends. You know, it's not about, it's not about what, what, you, what your belief system on the presidency is or you know, COVID protocol. And, and what happened was we started seeing that vibe trickle into the restaurant how, where, where how, our guests how? would come in, especially because now we have new protocols that mask mandates right. and vaccination yeah. statuses and, and are, like, are you being strict enough? Are, should are, you be open? Are you at 50% occupancy or 60? Exactly. Like, you, know, you know, did you have proper distancing between your tables? And some people came in with no mask on and didn't care. Some people came on with like, with like a mask and they're measuring tables. Like I want to make sure. <laughs> yeah. And no matter what you did, yeah. you were the bad guy. No matter right. which, what side you took or what, what avenue you decided to go down, you were the bad guy. You, you know, and it's like, as an operator, I was like, when the hell did I become some sort of political figure to make decisions on this? Yes. I'm going to follow the rules the best I can, 
for the safety of my employees, for the well-being of their of their futures in terms of monetarily as well. I'm, you know, all these things I had to take into consideration and lay out what I believe to be the best approach. And you know, we 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 got hate from both sides. You know, it could be you know from the person. You know, I mean, I remember down in San Diego, we had a lady come in the door, and she, you know, we were open at a time when we were allowed to be open, and she opened the door and screams, "You're killing everybody!" It's like, what? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just serving food over here, yeah, you know? Yeah. Well, you're killing everybody by letting people come in your restaurant. I'm like, it's state guidance says we're allowed to do such a thing, right? Yeah. You know, but it doesn't matter because that, you know, and, and the, the, the whole uh, dynamic of, of human interaction was that way. So I think our staff had to bear the brunt of that. I don't know, there's a famous viral video of a hostess in, in New York. She's at the front and said something about put on your mask and she got into a full fist fight with, and this is, you know, 17, 18 year old hostess, you know, working at a restaurant, she shouldn't have to get punched in the face no. because she asked somebody to put a mask on yeah. or, or didn't ask somebody to put a mask on or whatever, or asked their vaccinations that it's, we, we're, we're not in the position to have to, and you know, a lot of industries had to do it. I mean, like airline flight attendants, I mean, they, you've seen the millions of viral videos about how much hate they got, you know, enforcing a company's policy. So it, it became really difficult for us to navigate that, you know, as operators, but even more so for staff. You know, these guys aren't necessarily in the owner's box. They're not necessarily reaping benefits of being an owner. They're employees that, that make their wages and we do the best to provide for them the best we can, but they shouldn't have to be, be sustain that kind of abuse or, or you know, mental turmoil. You know? And, that, and that's probably another factor, undoubtedly another factor that made it on the back end difficult for you to find staffing because they had to go through some 100%. of those traumatic experiences during the pandemic and then yep. they don't want to go back into the industry. Because, you know, we're not, I hate to say, we, it feels like we're, we're through it because we're sitting here in the basement of the city of City Hall, the dungeon, and, and the dungeon, and we're and we don't have our masks on, which is great, but we don't know what's going to happen, you know, and we just don't know. And yeah, so the there, most there's important a, thing is you don't talk about two things in a restaurant: religion or politics. Uh, <laughs> and that seems like that's all that people talk about now. Yeah. I know, you know, I know. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate the, the comments about staff, especially. I, I, my two daughters, both teenagers, work in the restaurant business. My oldest one's worked for a number of them in the area um, as a hostess. Uh, my younger one's a, a busser now, which is great. I love that they're getting some you know, real good life skills. Um, but Do I didn't need a job, by the way. <laughs> I'm hiring. I could, I could, yeah, okay. I Just, could push for yeah. a, a second one. Um, but I don't always appreciate like what they had to go through, especially like you said, a 17 or 18 year old kid as a hostess having to deal with customers who all of a sudden have a political agenda. And it's not mm -hmm. about just sitting down and having a nice meal and all the other you know, uh, wait times at a restaurant. It's all this other stuff. Um, but I would say kind of shifting a little bit here, um, one uh, hopefully benefit of the last couple of years is sort of a rediscovery of outdoor dining. And I know yeah. both of you have been able to take advantage of that. And um, you know, I'm, I'm pleased that the city was able to institute a program. You know, we had a little bumps in the beginning, um, mm -hmm. but it's amazing to me in Southern California that all of a sudden people have decided like outdoor dining is this new thing when yeah. you know it should be uh, something we always do and more importantly I think that and maybe you can you can tell us whether or not your customers have responded well to that and if the you know the downside of like taking over parking or losing parking has really been a problem or if that's 
you know, a trade-off people are willing to make? Well, we got lucky at Wild Goose because we did the construction during COVID. Uh, we had um, started construction, I believe it was um, at the very end of 2019. COVID shut us down on March 17th, 2020. And at th that point, the um, building was like in the framing stage. And my partner and I looked at each other and said, do we keep working <laughs> or do we stop the construction? Because I mean, we're, we're gonna run out of money, right? Yeah. There's no more income coming in. And uh, we decided to keep working and thank God we, we undid because by the end of 2020, we completed the construction of the Wild Goose. And the Wild Goose, we designed it in 2016. It has a massive outdoor patio, right. um, you know, bifold doors, open right. windows. And then the, the joke is I, I um, designed it to be COVID approved. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, like even though we designed it years prior. Right. So we never did the outdoor COVID patio at Wild Goose because we didn't need to. Right. And we were really lucky to be able to have the outdoor dining there. But then at Playa Mesa, we did have it. Right. And at Playa Mesa, it helped save us. And unfortunately, at Playa Mesa, the way the parking lot was configured, the patio just wasn't really conducive to like, you know, being like a desirable patio. Right. You had to like leave the building and then walk across the parking lot to go to a detached patio. Yeah. So, so some, some businesses were able to have like a really cool, a really you know, good parking lot layout. So their, their stores rolled right into the parking lot. They were eating up stalls and it didn't affect them. Um, on the boardwalk in Newport Beach, we have Dory Deli, Blackies, and Super Ponga Taqueria. We have these great patios right out front, mm -hmm. ocean front, ocean views. Yes. We got to get rid of them in two weeks. Oh, really? Yeah, because um, it's on public property. I guess there's an issue with the Coastal Commission. And, you know, even, like, even though the existing restaurants face the ocean with ocean views, when our customers show up, the first seats they pick are the outdoor patio seats. Yeah. The inside fills up last, the patio fills up first. So we know what, what the customers want. The customers right. want to be outside. Right. And also Orange County, especially Costa Mesa, Newport, the best weather in the world. Yes. Not the best weather in the state or the country, in the world. I agree. Year-round. Yes. I agree. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. It's totally true. Yeah. Um, so, so he, so we're here in City Hall. So I've got a question for both of you. Okay. What what can the city do? I mean, any city, but particularly Costa Mesa. What can the city do to make uh, your lives easier? You know, and and to um, and in, and to help you in your in your restaurants. I mean, I would say th this city is, is, is incredibly easy to work with. It's, uh, I don't know about your experiences, Mario, but building department to the planning commission, I mean, we, we actually recently had to do a planning decision with um, expanding Oak and Coal. And, you know, it relatively was a very simple process. Um, I would say as long as the city kind of maintains that mentality about helping businesses not be uh, uh, afraid of starting that process because it can be daunting especially if it's a mom-and-pop operator who's never done it you know Mario has incredible expertise in the field you know I've done it a few times but you know someone who's just starting off wants to bring in a new cool food concept make an inviting form make the fees obviously not too absorbent that it, it chases away that initial because I think that's the foundation of, of the city is I, I think it started with uh, trying to entice people to it's the city of the arts right so enticing people to be creative and try new ideas and not being so uh, bureaucratic in the process that they lose interest and they go to somewhere that's easier to deal with now uh, luckily I believe we are still one of the easier places I've dealt with a few cities now and it, I'd, I'd say it's probably in the top three of, of ease of, of, of getting stuff done but I'd say just maintaining that would yeah. be huge I would say just continue to work on the culture of the city staff, um, all the city departments to be a pro-business culture. Mm -hmm. And that's not, it's not something that happens overnight. I think it's 
over the course of months and years if you guys can just keep that on the forefront and um, you know, work with staff to have a pro-business mentality and have a little bit more of a um, problem solver, not a problem finder mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, depending on who you work with on the city staff side, sometimes you walk in there, they just tell you all the negatives and how hard it's gonna be and they don't make an effort to find a, a, an amicable solution for an issue that, you know, that might be on the plans. Yeah. So you know, we um, you know, have a great relationship with, with the city, the police department's fantastic. And um, you know, so I would just say citywide, whether it's the police department, fire department, whether it's city staff, building, planning, engineering, just keeping that, that culture that pro-business, pro-community culture. I've um, seen different cities in Orange County over the course of years. Um, they, they, they did not have that culture, and it was an adversarial relationship that if you were a business owner, restaurant owner specifically, or bar owner, it was always, okay, we're gonna start the conversation with every roadblock you can possibly think of before you get started. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I have those same cities have, over the course of years with good city management, they've changed the culture. And now those same cities, you walk in there and they say, we want your business, what can we do to work with you? Absolutely. So I've seen the transition, I won't say which cities, but I've seen the transition from um, adversarial anti-business to the same cities being pro-business and inclusive and working together. And I, it just makes everyone happier. It makes the residents happier because when you create that adversarial relationship, then some of the squeaky wheels in the neighborhood feed off of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, then, yes. and then you get the weird people sending out emails and you know, complaining about stuff because they know there's, an ad, there's already an adversarial public-private relationship that's in existence. Mm -hmm. When it's a cohesive relationship, then the squeaky wheels kind of realize they, like, they can't exploit something that should not be exploited. I think that's, that's really true, that people, um, everybody needs to understand the kind of the symbiotic relationship that we have, that without, without the business community, we wouldn't have the sales tax you know we're a sales we're, we're going into our budget season yeah. we're a sales tax based city as opposed to newport which is more of a property tax and based TOT. city right and, and TOT. tot yeah and so we really rely on our businesses and so the residents have to have an appreciation of the importance of the businesses to our city and providing the city services but also what a uh, how it the businesses make our community so great you know I mean if you live close we live biking walking distance yeah. from Michelin star restaurants from the top restaurants in Orange County if not California if not the United States so yeah we have to really appreciate the interrelationship between business and the residents in the city um, you guys ready to do some parting shots? What's your, so you, you, you've got any questions you've been burning to ask or statements you've not, not, not burning, but there's, there's one and I'm gonna, um, I've been kind of holding on to, which is uh, the idea of the role of social media for your, your restaurants. Because it, it seems like I can't go to a meal without my kids take, snapping a photo of something yeah. and posting it. Um, and it seems like that's just ubiquitous. Um, and uh, I'm imagining it's helpful for restaurants, but I, I don't quite know. So I'm, I'm curious if you, know, you do manage social media accounts and it's a daily... I think you have to. It's, it's, a, it's an absolute must in the, in the business now. You know, um, obviously everything is driven by influencers, food and drink influencers, um, TikTok, Instagram. Facebook is still a viable option. Um, but yeah, we, we, we definitely still devote quite a bit of budget into that. Um, 
with social media influencing and uh, content creation and taking photography, which is which is something I think we've always done in the business, but now it's so important to constantly be relevant. Like, you know, back when I first started, we may take pictures of the dishes once a year, if that, you know? And then now it's literally every week, we're taking new pictures of the dishes, new content, more stuff, because mm -hmm. people are so, yeah. they need change, they need instant, instant you know, instant satisfaction on, on what, what's getting them going at that moment. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's going to continue that direction. Uh, you know, Mario does a phenomenal job on his social media. Um, we, we, we do our best, and, and I think it's going to keep going that way. Does it, does it drive business, or does it just maintain things? I, I think it's maintenance, to be honest, at this point. I mean, we want it to drive business. We want it to get in front of eyes of guests that we haven't seen before, and... and uh, um, obviously inform the community of new specials we have or new drinks or new food items but um, it's it, it, it maintains and drives you know so uh, if we're doing a really good job we're driving if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing we're maintaining and if you're not doing anything along at all you're declining yeah. so it's fascinating to me that like it's not just the restaurant industry just service and food it's everything else it's like marketing and branding and that somebody could be a specialized you know restaurant uh, marketing specialist. Mm -hmm. Like that's yeah. a, a job I would never think existed before. There, there's an actual um, industry now that re on restaurant and food photography, where all they do is they, they take pictures of food and drinks and those are full-time careers and they're, wow. and they're very profitable. People show up for you know $1,000, they spend half a day taking photos of all your food and drinks and then the photos are edited and then you use those for your social media, for your website. So there's been multiple industries that have spun off of social media. And I remember back, I can't remember if it was 2007 or so, my friend Andy, who was involved in technology, you know, it was the first time I heard the word social media because it was on, you know, Facebook was um, active. I don't, I'm not sure if Instagram was like really popular yet. Twitter was just coming out. And he says, Mario, um, all that stuff you do, it's called social media. Yeah. And that was the first time I heard that term, right? Because the term never existed before. And then about a year later, he said, um, hey, it's going to become critical that you get a social media manager. I'm like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> yeah. The idea that I'm going to hire someone to manage my you know, Facebook and Instagram, you're, you're, you're crazy. Um, we have a full marketing department now. We have a, a social media manager. We have a marketing department. We have a full-time graphic designer. And, the graphic, and then the graphic designer is there for the social media. He's not there to just design our you know, POS that's on the walls and the menus. He's there to put content on the social media full time, so we've got multiple salaries now dedicated to, to your question. Is it's it's um, critical? Mm -hmm. um, you have to have it, and if it's driving sales, it means you're doing it right. If you're not driving sales, you're probably doing something wrong. But if your operations are not in line with the quality of your marketing, then people are going to show up. They're going to have a bad experience, and they're not going to come back. Um, the most important thing that I've noticed that that's huge, and Jeff might have noticed it too, with some of those new openings. Um, I've um, worked in the restaurant industry my entire life. I've opened up restaurants before, during, and after social media. Before it existed, while it was you know, becoming a thing, and then after it was already matured. And when you opened up a restaurant before social media, you had about a two-year window where you'd be able to gauge if a restaurant was going to be viable or not. And over that two-year window, at the end of about 24 months, you would say, the restaurant's going to um, plateau and maintain, it's going to be on an upward tra trajectory, or it's going to decline and go out of business after about two years. Um, now it's light years. Um, you, you can tell that in about six months. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you go to a restaurant. Because people make their decisions now 
not based on their experience or not even the experience of a friend of theirs that went there, which is what you did before social media. Right. People make their decision on whether they want to come to your business based on what somebody else wrote that you don't know. Someone you don't know made a comment about their experience and you won't go there because of that review. Yeah. So that's how quickly the information travels now. So you've got to be spot on on your food, your service, your ambiance. You've got to hit up all the senses, you know, all the six senses, everything, smell, food, taste, ambiance, lighting. It's got to be perfect because somebody's going to make a comment on Facebook, Instagram, Yelp, Google, TripAdvisor. One of those platforms, they're going to mention their experience. And if you get too many negative ones, somebody's going to read that. It is not going to show up at all. Yeah. Not, not even give you the opportunity to win them over. The first time I ever heard about social media, it has to do with restaurant, uh, uh, Costa Mesa restaurant. So it was, uh, I was asked to lead a group at Con the Constitutional Rights Foundation Law Day. And um, they knew I was from Costa Mesa. They say, hey, we got this guy. It's Costa Mesa restaurant owner. He's going to present to the Law Day is, is to high school students. And they learn about a different a, a different business or a different uh, opportunity, and it was Wing Lamb. Okay. And so he gets up and he speaks. I go, everybody, Wahoo's Wing Lamb, and they clap. Yeah. He says, "Okay, I want to explain to you what we're doing here." And nobody, and it was just as like blank slate, and everybody's eyes were like, "We're on a thing called MySpace." He said, <laughs> I'm not, and I'm not making this up. Yeah. MySpace. He goes, "There's a new way of advertising." He says, and he had a guy named Eddie the Mullet. I don't know if you guys know Eddie the no. Mullet, but uh -uh. he would Eddie the Mullet would go out with all of the he'd like send him to Coachella and send him to concerts and have all these experiences and he'd have the yeah. Wahoo's gear on. And they and then he said the great just exactly what you're talking about. He says, It used to be in advertising that we had we told about our product. He says, Now we're having people create content, organic content yeah. about our product to create our advertising and we're doing it in this way and I was like wow this is amazing I can't believe it and now it's just so common yeah you can't yeah. even believe and it and now people he pay would, to get that yeah, organicness exactly <laughs> and he he was one of the pioneers and yeah. Wahoo's was one of yeah. the pioneers of social media advertising you know Costa Mesa business started right over on yeah. Placentia mm -hmm. and now look where we are now it's yeah. like, like you say ubiquitous mm -hmm. Yes, good word. Good word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> parting, any more parting shots? No that more was a parting. good one, by the way. Thank you. Great one. Okay, well, no more parting media. shots? I'm good. A, a social media and politics. I know. You know the restaurant oh, side, the political side, just in general, is just a necessary, I'm not sure to call it a necessary evil, but it's necessary. I know, I know. And I'm very resistant to it in my, in my politics, but yeah. it's an election year. I'm going to have to ramp it up. Yeah. Okay, so any other parting shots? Anything you want to say that you didn't get a chance to say? No, I, th I think we covered it all. I, Jeff, uh, do we, do we, you, we said it all, yeah. as Howard would say, you said it all. Yeah. All right, well, thank you very much. Uh, we had a great time. I hope you enjoyed listening uh, to our third volume of Costa Mesa Now. Thank you, uh, Jeff Chow. Thank you, Mario Morovic. Thank you, Jeff Harlan, the sage of the east side of Costa Mesa. And uh, we'll see you next time in episode four.